rest of us will be in Romans chapter 4 this morning. Romans chapter 4. We're going to be talking about the Christian faith and what that is not and what that is, what it does and who it benefits. Romans chapter 4. You know, since we've began our uh, series in Romans, we've looked at Paul writing about the gospel and how that has been uh, exalted. Paul exalted the gospel in chapter 1. And then Paul uh, talked about unbelief in chapter 1 and the consequences of that unbelief. And in that chapter he revealed to us that God's wrath is being revealed even today against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Then we go on to uh, learn that the world entirely is guilty before God. Every one of us is guilty. Every one of us has broken God's law. Every one of us deserves death. But Paul goes into chapter 3 in talking about justification. And in chapter 4 he speaks about justification by faith. Right? So we talked last week about righteousness, if you remember. We learned that another word for righteousness is worth. All right? You are worth something to God. God gives you substance, He gives you worth when He places His righteousness on you. Many people are looking for acceptance, many people are looking for significance in life. Many people feel neglected and outcast and, and ruined. Well, when you come to the Lord by faith, He puts righteousness on you. That's the righteousness of Christ. And then you have worth in the eyes of God. You are valuable to Him. He wants you to know that and understand that. And how do I get that worth? How do I get that righteousness? By faith. The Bible says. So today I want to talk to you about what that means by faith. Let's stand together and read a few verses in Romans chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the Father of us all. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word this morning in our hearts. Lord, help us to see it clearly. Help us to receive it and help us to live it. We know how vital that is to live out your word. And we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What do some people say about faith? You may be seated. Thank you. Some people say uh, faith is uh, different things. Some people say if you believe something to be true, then that means you have faith in it. Well, is that biblical faith, just to believe that, that something is true? Uh, I could believe a lot of things that aren't true. Does that mean that I have faith? That's one aspect of, of someone thinking about faith. Another aspect of faith or 
what the world might call faith is that if I have confidence in something, if I have enough confidence in this, I have faith in it. Does that make it true? If I have confidence in something, does that make it uh, biblical? Does that make it the faith that the Bible speaks of? No, it does not. You can have confidence in things that are not true, that does not make them. Uh, you can have faith in them and does not make them true. Another uh, part of faith, at least by the world's definition, is, is to believe something that I'm not sure is true. I, I almost have to talk myself into it. Now, now we're getting closer to the, the Christian faith for some people. They, they, they don't know it's true or there's things about Christianity that aren't true, but they want to think it is, so they believe in it, they trust in it, they have confidence in it, and they talk themselves into having faith in something that is not necessarily true. So all of those things about a false faith lead people to think it's true faith. Something that is genuine, something that is real. Paul teaches us in the scriptures today that to know real faith, you have to see it in action. To know what really is faith, you must see it in action. So Paul gives us a great illustration in Romans chapter 4. The whole chapter in reality is an illustration that Paul came up with about the patriarch of the faith, Abraham. All right. So Paul uses Abraham as his illustration. Now, in chapter 3, we talked about uh, the righteousness by uh, faith. We talked about the worth that we receive by faith. So it's important that we understand what this by faith means. And so there's some four things that I want to show you this morning about faith. Number one, what it is not. Okay. Number two, I want to show you what the effects of faith are or what is faith. Number three, what does faith do? And number four, who does faith help? All right? So the first point is, is this. What faith is not? Look in verse 13 with me again. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. So the promise, what was the promise? That he would be a father of many nations, that the world would be blessed through Abraham, that he would receive the gift of righteousness by his faith. So if faith comes through keeping the law, then, I mean, if righteousness comes through keeping the law, then faith is made empty. There's no need for it. If I can keep the law, then I can have this righteousness. But the problem is we can't keep the law. We can't live up to the code or the standard that God places upon us. None of us have ever been able to attain that position. Not even Abraham was able to attain that position of living up to the standard that God put before men. Why would God put such a high standard before us? Because He's a holy God. Because He's a perfect God. He's a sinless God. So He expects His subjects, His creation, to be likewise. And yet, at the same time, we're not able to obtain that. We're not able to live towards that goal. Faith is not trying to meet a standard. Faith is not trying to live up to some law that God has put 
in front of me. Faith, if I could live up to the law and receive righteousness from God, then I would be living by works. It would be what I do that would earn my righteous association with God. It would be how I behave and what I can attain and what I can do and what I can overcome. That would earn me favor with God. But we know the Bible says that we can't obtain that. We can't live up to that law. Let me give you an example. I've used this before. I'll make you a promise. And whoever can do this, I will give you $1,000. Now, I'll have to borrow that 1000 but I will promise I'll give you the $1,000, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand here in the middle of this room, and I want you to touch, jump and touch that medallion up there in the middle of that ceiling. I'll even help you out. I'll let you get a running start from this stage. Anybody that can touch that medallion, I will give you $1,000. Now, here's what my example is. My promise to you to give you that money is worthless, isn't it? It, 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 It's empty promise. Why? Because you can't do it. So God said, I promise that through the law I can give you righteousness. But man says, we can't do that. And God says, then therefore the promise is nullified. Because you can't do what I'm asking you to do. Man cannot live by the law. Man cannot attain righteousness through the law of God. Now, go back even further. Abraham was considered righteous to God before the law was even given. 430 some odd years. So how did Abraham get that righteousness? that was supposed to come through the law, how did he get it 400 years earlier? The Bible says he believed God. He trusted God. He had faith in God. That is Paul's example this morning of faith and how we can attain the righteous relationship with God that we all long to have. We all long to be accepted. We all long to have worth. We all long to be a part of what God made and be associated with him. We just couldn't get there by keeping the rules. And so Paul says, it's not by rule keeping that you're going to get there. It's by the faith that you have in God and the trust that you have in him that will get you there or not. The law requires something I cannot do. Jumping to the ceiling and touching the medallion. I can't do that. I can't get the hundred dollars. The thousand dollars. I can't keep the law. It's impossible for me to do it. I cannot attain the righteousness that God sets forth in his word. So something else must help me out. What was uh, the law given for? Well, if I could live the law, what would I be doing according to Jesus? If I could live out the law, here's what I would be doing. I would be loving. I would. Jesus said the first... The two greatest commandments were this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Whoever does that fulfills the law. So the law was given to show me to love. To love. Some of you said, well, I love. No, not not being angry with somebody is not loving them. 
Not talking bad about somebody is not loving them. Love is reaching out. Love is doing something that is abnormal for us. Love is something that we would have to do continuously without fail. Have any of you ever loved that way? God with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself, without fail. No, we haven't. Therefore, we cannot live up to the law of God. We have to come to righteousness through another way. And Paul gives us that illustration. Faith is not living up to the law. Faith is something else. Faith is loving. Faith is trusting. Faith is believing and understanding what God wants us to have and to do and to be. Faith is not living by the law. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. Faith, uh, the law brings wrath. Look in verse 15. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there neither is there violation. What's the definition of, of wrath? We go back to Romans chapter 1 and we find that definition of wrath. God is revealing wrath from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So what is the wrath of God? God removing his hand from you. God removing his protection from you. God removing his protective hand from a nation of people, from a society, from a culture, from a church, from a group of people. That is the wrath of God when he removes his divine protection. And what happens when God removes his divine protection? Men begin to disintegrate. Men begin to fall apart. Men begin to uh, live in a hole, so to speak. Men begin to have problems of depression and despair. Their life becomes hopeless and meaningless. They are lost and undone and they feel abandoned. When God removes his hand from men, in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says three times God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. What is he doing? He's removing his hand. He's allowing the consequences of sin to take a hold and destroy that person, that group, that nation, that church, that family. You see what happens when a family lives apart from God? God's hand is removed God gives them up to the way they want to go. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, all of humanity are two kinds of people. One group says to God, thy will be done. The other group, God says to them, your will be done. God gave them up. He removed the divine protection of his hand, of his arm, of his power, of his grace, of his forgiveness. He removed it. And he allowed the consequences of that sin to start wreaking havoc in the life of that man or that family or that nation. That's God's wrath. It's not some kind of lightning bolt judgment that comes down on someone. It's simply God backing away and removing his protection from that person. And they suffer the consequences. The law brings wrath. The law brings the idea that you and I cannot live up to that. You know, all the way from Adam to Moses, there was no law. Look in verse 15. 
For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. From Adam to Moses, there was no law. Moses brought the law, amen? The Ten Commandments. So from Adam to Moses, men sinned, but they sinned in ignorance of a law. But guess what? In Romans 1, we talked and learned that we all have that law implanted in us. That law enlightens every man who is ever born. And so a man can violate the law that he has within himself, his conscience. Have you always done what your conscience told you to do? Not always. Then you violated that law that was in you. You see that? So from Adam to Moses, men violated what they knew was to be right. And they broke the law that was even within themselves. They did it in ignorance, but they still broke the law of God. They still broke the law that God had given them. And so, man was now guilty before a holy God, whether he had the law written on stone tablets or not. He is still guilty of violating that law. An example today. Young people, and they don't have to be young, old people, any age people, they want to live together out of wedlock. They want to move in and they want to see if it works before they tie the knot. They want to try this or they want to try that. They, 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 what are they doing? Some people do it knowingly violating God's law, but some people aren't aware that that violates God's law. They're not in church. They don't know that they are violating the law of God. But does it matter? They are violating the conscience of knowing in themselves what is right and what is wrong. Whether they have the law of God, whether they have a Bible on the coffee table or not, they end up violating that law. What does God do with that? He gives them up. He gives them over, right? He gives them over to that depraved mind. And now they are ignorantly violating the law of God. But it does not change the consequences. That's why the society in America today is breaking down. That's why the family unit has broken down and has been scattered. God is giving us up. Amen? Somebody needs to stand up and say, that violates God's law. Don't do that. That's against everything that is true and right. Don't do that. Why? Because you're going to end up removing God's hand from us. And so now we see it. Every day on the news, the family is broken down. There are more kids without dads in the home than any other place. Why? Because there's no, nothing to tie the family together. There's no marriage vow that God performed in that garden with Adam and Eve. He performed that first marriage, and it was important. But today we don't see that. We just want to live together. We just want to do things our own way, whether you know you're doing wrong by God's word or not. Now here comes the law. God gave us the law through Moses. God gives this couple the law through a pastor or a Christian friend or a, a, a relative. And they read the scripture for themselves. And now they understand they're violating God's law, not just their own law. The law reveals to us what is wrong with us. 
The law reveals to us what we are doing that is wrong. The law points us to the Savior. So if a young couple doesn't know they're violating God's law and you put that Bible in front of them and they read it, now they've got a decision to make. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen? But if a couple remains that way, unmarried, after seeing God's law, now they're not disobeying it in ignorance. Now they're disobeying Him. You see? And so it's, it's a, it's a catch-22, right? It's, it's difficult, but it is what works. It is what is true. It is what is right. God's law, it, we do not gain righteousness by Keeping the law. The law brings wrath. Amen? You see that in verse 15? Now let's go and see what the law does. What does the law do in verse 16? For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants. The promise of what? The promise of righteousness that would come through grace by faith. That's the promise that God wants us to see. Faith brings us the promise. Righteousness is worth before God. Look in verse 13. It also has another promise there. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. Paul talks about this in a couple other places. He says, everything is yours, Christian. Everything. Anything and everything in this world is yours by Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, it all is yours. You are an heir just like Abraham was an heir to the world. Everything is his. All possession, all power, all that the world could offer, all that the world has to offer is ours at our hands if we are Christ. We are heirs to that. Now, there's some things in the world we don't want, certainly. But all the things that are good and godly, those are ours in this world. So what does faith do? Well, faith introduces grace. We saw that that the law brings wrath to you and I. So what does faith do? Faith introduces me to grace. The law and the grace are opposed. But you cannot neglect either one. Right? They go hand in hand, the law and grace. If you everybody hear anybody, if you ever hear anybody say, I live under grace, I don't need the law, you need to correct them. They do need the law. In fact, we, we read that at the end of chapter three. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So grace of God and the law of God go hand in hand, even though they are opposed. They are working simultaneously together in two different ways. The law shows me what I'm doing that is wrong. Grace comes in to forgive me of that wrong. I can still have the righteousness of God at the same time through the grace that He offers. Even though they're opposed, they are both necessary. Law condemns, but grace brings the promise. That's what grace does. I'm sorry, that's what faith does. It introduces me to grace. 
All right? Now let's go on into verse 17 and let's see what faith is. What is faith? Come on, computer. There we go. Verse 17 says this, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, he's speaking to Abraham, in the sight of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Let me, now we're going to get a little touchy, all right, about your faith. Some uh, faith. What, what is faith? What, what is faith? Well, faith is something that we have in an object, all right? It doesn't matter how much faith you have as long as it's the object that you have the faith in. That's what's important. Let me illustrate that. Jesus said, the faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Amen? You came in this morning in your car and you got in it at your house and you drove down here and you had faith in that car that it would get you here. Amen? You, you trusted it. When you go out these doors, you're going to get in that car and you're going to have faith in that car that it's going to get you home. But what happens if the wheels fall off of your car on the way home? You have great faith in an object that is broken and the wheels fall off and you might lose your life. You have such great faith in an object that is broken. Now, on the other hand, when you leave this place, you're going to say, well, I better check my wheels because my old car is pretty old and, and I, I'm not sure. So now you drive home very carefully. You have little faith in that old broken down jalopy you're driving home in because the wheels might fall off. So you have little faith in something, but it gets you home. It does its job. It is strong. It is powerful, even though you have little faith in it. Do you see the difference? I can have great faith in a bad thing, and I can have little faith in a good thing. It's not the amount of faith that you have that's important. It is the object that your faith is in. So Abraham, in verse 17, tells us about this God. It's not how little faith I have or how big a faith I have. I, I've been to places where they said, oh, your faith isn't great enough for God to accomplish something in your life. I went to a, a, a church one time. We went to a, a healing service in Rocky, Oklahoma. And, you know, I was the Baptist preacher in Rocky, Oklahoma. But I went to a healing service of a, a non-denominational church. And they got up there and this guy's preaching. And he says, you got to have faith in God and this and that. And, and people go up there and they come back and sit around us. What did they do to you? I didn't have enough faith. He said, I don't have enough faith. It's not the amount of faith that a person has. I can have a faith the size of a mustard seed and a move a mountain with that. Amen? It's not the amount of faith. It's what your faith is in that is important. And so Abraham had faith in God. And look what he says about God in verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him who believed even God, who gives life to the dead, and he calls into being that which does not exist. That's the God Abraham trusted. A God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that don't even yet exist. 
In the book of Genesis, God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And God said, let there be, and it was. And let there be, and it was. And let there be, and it was. God was calling into existence things that did not even exist yet. That's the God who Abraham has faith in. And then he goes further and he says, This God that I trust and that I have faith in is able to give life even to the dead. Now, when you think about that, what is he referring to? He's referring to you and to me. The Bible says you and I were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy and love and grace, gave us life in Jesus Christ. We were dead. We were hopeless. We were without. And yet God looked upon us, and we had faith in Him, and He gave us life, and He gave us righteousness in exchange. This God is the very God that Abraham saw, and Abraham trusted, and Abraham longed to know and believe. Now, what are some obstacles to the faith that Abraham might have had? What are some obstacles to your and mine's faith? Let's see what his were in verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Abraham was 100 years old when God told him he was going to have a son. 100 years old. Abraham said, whoa, wow, I don't know about that. And then he'd been having, uh, attempting to have a son with his wife, Sarah, all of the years of their marriage, and she was barren. So Abraham faces the facts. An obstacle for Abraham was his 100-year-old body and his barren wife's womb. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. Amen. Now, what would you think? Oh, God, you've got it wrong. You're speaking to the wrong person. But you know what? Abraham, it says in verse 19, contemplated. What was he doing? He faced the facts of reality. He had faith in a God who gives life to the dead and who calls things into being that do not exist. And Abraham looked at his 100-year-old body in his wife's barren womb, and he said, I believe. What would you say? I believe. I believe is what Abraham said. That is the faith of our father Abraham. That is the faith that you and I need to trust in Jesus Christ today, to give life to the dead body I have, and to call things into being that do not yet exist in my life and in my world and in your world. An obstacle of his was the the horrible hopelessness of the circumstances in front of Abraham. And then the second thing we find there is this in verse 19, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. 
What is he saying there? Abraham thought about this, and he said, I'm 100 years old, and I'm going to have a kid. Can you believe it? Can you imagine what's going to happen to my family and, and everything that I have and all of the, the plans I've made and all of the things that have fallen apart and all the things that are coming together? I'm going to have a kid. I, I'm scared to death. That's what he said in respect to the promise. He did not waver in respect to the promise. An obstacle for you are circumstances that seem hopeless. And another obstacle for you to believe is the reality that it will come true. And are you prepared for it? You ask God for something. You have faith in Him. Are you prepared for Him to answer you? Or are you just thinking, oh, it's beyond what He can do. It's beyond hope. It's beyond the circumstances of my life that God would do this. And that's an obstacle to your faith that God would do it. And therefore you don't really believe even though you ask. Abraham looked at his body, his wife's barren womb, and he said, I believe. And then he thought about it. Oh my gosh, what if it happens? What am I going to do? And he did not waver in his belief. Do you understand? He knew that God would take care of it. He knew that God would have the situation under control. That's what faith does. It believes God no matter the circumstances. It believes God no matter the hopelessness. It believes God no matter the greatness of the item I'm asking for. Or He's wanting to give me. I won't let that stop me from believing that it could be. Amen? That's where you and I sometimes trip and fall as we begin to uh, squander that and think lightly of the things that God wants to do for us. Now, Abraham uh, has a God who gives life to the dead and who calls into being things that are not yet. And in verse 20, let's read on, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, let's go back to Genesis. Abraham's going to give glory to God. Here's how the story played out. Abraham's sitting out uh, under his tent awning one day, keeping the sun off of him, and he is sipping iced tea, and Sarah's inside cooking dinner, and Abraham looks across the way, and there's three men standing over there. Genesis chapter 18. And so Abraham jumps up, and he runs over there, and he calls the man Lord, little L. He's not quite sure who he is yet, but he calls him Lord. And he says, why don't you guys come and uh, refresh yourself at my tent? I'll get you some water to wash your feet. I'll get you something to drink and, and maybe a piece of bread. Then you can be on your way. And so the Lord is one of the three and two angels. And they come to Abraham's tent. And they sit down and Abraham goes out to the flock and he gets a choice calf and he prepares it. He tells Sarah to bake some bread and he gets his servants all busy and going and they present this food to these three men and they eat it. And then they get up and get ready to go and, and uh, he says, uh, the Lord says to Abraham, by the way, uh, I'll return this time next year. And when I return, Sarah will have a child. Sarah's in the tent. She goes, what? What did he say? I'm going to have a child? I haven't had a child my whole life. I'm in my 90s. 
Abraham's 100 years old. The Bible says she chuckled. She laughed. <laughs> I'm going to have a child. Yeah, right. And it says the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, why did Sarah laugh? And Abraham said, she didn't laugh. Abraham, and God said to Abraham, yeah, she laughed. And then he says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I believe Abraham, after the Lord leaves, the two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to destroy that horrible place. The Lord leaves. Abraham goes in. He said, did you hear that? You're going to have a kid. We're going to have a child. And they just leap in joy and they're having fun. And she's still not with it. What does faith do to help somebody else? Abraham shares with his wife his experience with God. I'm sure they talked about it beforehand, but now they've got a specific topic to talk about. Their son, their child that's coming. And, and so they, they get prepared for this. And Sarah, she's wavering a little bit, but the strength of her husband, the faith of her husband solidifies her own faith. What does your faith do for somebody else? It helps them to overcome. It helps them to have faith. And I believe this uh, with all of my heart. The Bible don't say this at all, but I, I can see this hanging on the wall in Sarah's bedroom. A little plaque that she made up. And it says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18.14. Amen? And a year later, she gives birth to their son, Isaac. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me ask you, you you've, been, you've been praying about somebody in your life and, and, and you've given up hope for them because they're showing no signs of turning to God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You've been contemplating being saved yourself. You're, you're not really sure that you are, but you want to be, and you're, 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 not, you're wondering about it. And, and is anything too hard for the Lord to do for you, to do for someone, to save someone? Is, is God's arm too short that He can't save us? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course not. That's a decision you have to make. You have to follow. Uh, you want to overcome things in your life. Is anything too hard for the Lord to help me overcome things in my life? Problems in my life? Work problems? Social problems? Any kind of problem? Is anything too hard for God? What kind of faith do I have? Well, i got a whole bunch of faith. Don't say that. It doesn't matter how much faith you have or how little faith you have. What matters is where is your faith in? What is your faith in? Abraham had faith in a God who gives life to the dead. I was dead in my sin and trespasses. And God gave me life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen? God can call things into existence that do not exist as of yet. That's the kind of God Abraham trusted. And that's the kind of God that you and I have as well. Let's read on and finish this chapter. Verse 21. And being fully assured that what 
he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What was given to him as righteousness? His faith, his belief in God that God could do these things. That was given to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 23, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This was an illustration of Abraham, but it was written to you. Every one of you in this room, it was written to you so that you could believe in a God like Abraham's God. So that you could see that God can do all things. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I tell you, no. There's nothing too hard for Him. Don't give up on the people you're praying for. Keep praying. Keep pouring it on. I'm as guilty as anyone. I'll pray for someone for a long while Months, and then it slips away because I see no progress in their life. But is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Keep praying. Keep moving. Keep loving. Keep trusting. That's what faith does. It is an action word, not just a word we receive. It is something that we do. Let's pray. Father, bless this moment in this church building, in this room, among these people, your church. And I pray that you help us to see the value of faith. And Father, I, I know that you are the great God, the holy God, the wonderful creator of all things. And Lord, I trust that, and I know that, and I know nothing's too difficult for you. And I pray now for all my requests that you would look upon them, and you would address them, Lord, and you would deal with them in your timing and for your purpose and for your plan. And Lord, give me patience as I wait for that answer. Father, don't let me jump ahead like Abraham and Sarah did, but let me wait and trust and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.